Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, a story that Josh Poirier first shared on the show in May of 2014. Here's Josh now with a story we call My Bodyguard. So I was never the biggest, toughest kid growing up. Uh, I grew into myself, obviously, but uh, as a kid who loved Dungeons and Dragons, video games and comic books, I was obviously the target of many a bully. When I finally found a chance to get away from this, my parents moved into a new neighborhood when I was 12, and I got a chance to fully appreciate these geeky pursuits that I wanted to do and enjoy that brand new undiscovered country called Outside. <laughs> what it was, it was a great place. It was idyllic. Uh, we had a basketball court and a playground right behind the house. We had uh, it was a two-minute bike ride away from my best friend, and there was a video game arcade and a bowling alley, literally, within a five-minute bike ride, so it was amazing. It was a great place to be a kid, and here I would finally get to be free of bullies. It was about three days in when the hell started. Uh, I was actually trying to ingratiate myself with the kids in the neighborhood, and I was playing a game of Relivio or Kick the Can, one of those games where you uh, hide. You have one person that's in, and you run and hide, and then you gotta get back to home base and call ghouls, or at least that's what it was in this neighborhood. 
Uh, so I found my favorite hiding spot. I always loved this hiding spot where right next to home base in the bushes so that the second they said, second it reached 100, I heard her hit 100, her eyes glanced over and passed over me. She hadn't seen me. So I was instantly gonna become the coolest new kid of all time. And in Boston in 1987, that's a really tall order. <laughs> so I ran, I, I looked behind me quickly to see if anybody was behind me and exploded out of the bushes only to be met with the most insanely powerful clothesline that I've ever had in my life. And as I grabbed at my throat and gasped for air, <laughs> as the tears kind of just cleared from my eyes, I looked up and I saw the devil and the devil looked back at me. And this, this devil was about five foot eight, squat, not really muscular with mischievous eyes. And he looked at, and I, all I heard was his voice, this laughter and this voice that just said, Hey, get up, you fucking pussy. Huh? Yeah, look at you crying, you little pussy. I knew that evil existed at that moment, and that evil's name was Paul. <laughs> now, this went on for a long time. This, went on, this was endless. I mean, the second time I ran into him was when he came to my bus stop. He actually followed me to my bus stop and stood there just staring at me, quietly, silent, till finally I just I acted up, and I was like, what? The answer was a huge punch in the arm and a quiet nothing. From that point forward, I knew that I had to avoid Paul at all costs. So I actually became the uncool kid in, the, in, in school because I rode the front of the bus while he patrolled the back. Uh, the other incidences are really too numerous to really discuss, but they did include the fact that I'd be playing basketball and out of nowhere, a rock would come with unerring accuracy and nail me in the head or I'd be mindlessly riding my bike around the neighborhood, around the few streets that I did ride around, and all of a sudden I'd get pushed off with, with unbelievable force into the bushes. He must have been a ninja because I never saw him coming. <laughs> Being punched in the face repeatedly, <laughs> having your Halloween candy stolen. I guess I lived up to the name Pussy because I never stood up to him. Uh, I wasn't the only one who had problems with him. Some of my friends had problems with him too, but he singled me out, and it was awful. I mean. He used to outsource me to other bullies when he was, when he was tired or sick or was away on vacation. <laughs> and you don't know, if you've never been bullied before, you don't know the lengths that you will go to to find out someone's schedule <laughs> just to know when you can play outside, only to have Mark from down the street throw you to the ground and pummel you senseless because Paul told him to. <laughs> Like I said, I never stood up to him. My parents never really did anything to either, but I don't blame them for it because in their eyes, it's just kids being kids. Now, I wanted, I wanted so much to grow up faster and leave that place. And I wanted Paul to just end up, just go to college. He was three years older than me. Just go to college already and leave me alone so I could actually enjoy being a kid in this beautiful neighborhood. So I could actually ride along the streets besides the two that were right next to my house so that I could actually do my entire paper out and get all the tips instead of having to give half of it to my best friend because Paul would be waiting in the bushes. Eventually, as things go, he did move on to college and I moved away as well. And I never really got to truly enjoy being a kid and those scars of Paul, both emotionally, physically, and mentally, always stuck with me. Now, time passes and I was 26 years old and I had, was now living with a woman that I had met at the Staples where I worked at. And on September 12, 2001, in a fit of confusion, 
and emptiness. I decided to do the, probably the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life, and I asked her to marry me. <laughs> but I had the same thought in my mind that probably a lot of you did too. Well, I gotta do something, right? But instead of donating my time or money, I decided to get married. <laughs> now at 26, it's not that I didn't love her, but at 26, I wasn't ready to settle down or be tied down to any one woman. So about a year later, after some soul searching, a lot of weed, friends advice, I actually called off the wedding a month before it happened. And I found myself lost, alone, broke, because <laughs> I actually paid for all the wedding. And just really, I didn't know what I was doing with myself. So I ended up back at my parents' house. <laughs> And my friends wanted nothing to do with me because I had pushed myself so hardcore on them because they were the only people that I had or thought I had. And my parents really, I mean, as supportive as they wanted to be, they couldn't be unbelievably supportive because of the fact that, I mean, who wants a 27-year-old son moving back into the house with them? <laughs> so the details get a little hazy now, um, but I do remember some things very starkly. One thing is that I wrote a suicide note on the back of a paper plate. In that suicide note, it detailed all the mistakes that I had made. And then I realized that suicide note was probably a mistake. So I crumpled it up and threw it away. And then I remember the night that I actually decided to do it. I remember walking to the bathroom into the medicine cabinet, opening the door. The light was extremely bright. I reached in, grabbed the bottle of like 7 p.m., and I filled the cup full of water that I used to flush up my mouth after I brushed my teeth. Calmly went to the living room, sat down, and proceeded to take 150, et cetera, p.m., and swallow them at once. I just thought I would get drowsy, and I did, because so I, I just wanted to sleep. I didn't necessarily want to die, I just wanted to sleep. And the thing that, you do fall asleep, but the thing that you don't know unless you've taken 100 pills is that your body fights like a cornered dog to keep you alive. It does whatever it needs to do to keep you from dying. And that means keeping you awake and making you throw up violently. The only thing is, is that the pills also want their say. So what happens is, is that the pills keep you asleep. So it was a constant battle. It was like an epic Michael Bay film <laughs> where I would just constantly fall asleep then wake up to throw up this black just viscous, it was like evil coming right out of me. And finally I fell asleep and I thought it would be the end and I thought I was dead. But of course I woke up the next morning, I had failed again. You know, there's a saying that you failed at the only thing you can't fail at, and that's committing suicide. And I was like, well, no, I'm not upset that I failed, I'm kind of happy because I tried something new. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> to be honest, I was fucking terrified. So what I decided to do is I needed, realize that I, didn't really want to be here, but I didn't want to go through what I went through the night before again. So I decided to check myself into an inpatient facility. And I did. Uh, the next morning I went, in, I went in and it took all day to check me in. But uh, the one thing that's nice about when you start to get checked into an inpatient facility, it's an instant relief. Because it's almost pleasurable because you're getting help. And that bed that they put you in, even though it's the most uncomfortable thing in the world, at that moment that bed is heavenly. And I pretty much fell right asleep, knowing that I was safe in these people's hands and that I would not, nothing bad would happen to me now. So the next morning I woke up to a soft voice 
and I couldn't quite make out what they said. And then the light snapped on and the voice repeated again, hey, get up, time to get up. Holy shit, it is you. And I looked up and I opened my eyes and as the sleep cleared from my eyes, I couldn't believe what I saw. I thought I had died and gone to hell or that I had lived and they brought hell to me because standing in the doorway was Paul. The bane of my childhood existence was now my keeper. So he looked at me and said, he looked at me and I, I was like, my first reaction was, holy shit, Paul, what the fuck? Don't hit me. He looked at me and said, hey, listen, I won't, I can't even if I wanted to. <laughs> and I, I, I looked up at him and, and I, I just, everything was open at that point. Like I was just so weak and just not ready to deal with this. And I was in that position. He was in the position that every bully wants to be in with their victim just lying there, not doing anything. <laughs> but he looked at me and said, hey, you okay? I thought about it for a second. I was like, no, I, I, not anymore. I mean, Jesus Christ, what the, f okay, now listen, uh, how do I, the fuck do I get out of this? Jesus, that window looks flimsy enough. Um, if I take that chair and pick it up and throw it through the window like the Indian chief in Cuckoo's Nest, I can probably <laughs> jump out the window, then tuck and roll at the bottom, and I'll only get away from the six-story drop with a few bruises. I must have mused on this for a while because he looked at me again and said, hey, are you okay? And at that point, it sounded like he cared. <laughs> so I answered, I said to him, I said, uh, Look at where I am. What do you think? He looked at me and said, hey, yeah. You know, I always thought you were funny. And I waited for the dot, dot, dot looking that comes at the end of every time someone said I was funny. But it didn't come. And he said, hey, why don't you get up? I'll take you around and show you around the, the ward. And in the confusion that I was in, I followed him. Now, what a lot of people don't know about being inpatient is it's not as bad as you think because everybody has their own preconceptions of what it's like. And it's really not as bad as you think. It's really kind of a nice place. Uh, there are the people who are quote unquote crazy in there. But a lot of people are just, for the most part, most of the people are just like you. They just need a place to, to kind of get back on their feet. And they feed you like crazy. And you can finally catch up on that, that coloring that you wanted to do as an adult but never got a chance to. <laughs> so, <laughs> So as I walked through the ward with Paul, we kind of chatted about a few things, chatted about what had happened in our lives and really basic stuff. And I realized as I was looking at him, I'm like, wow, he's somehow smaller and wiser. And he seems much kinder, like he almost dropped the bully inside of him and became a human being. I was still intimidated by him, <laughs> don't get me wrong. But I felt bad now that I was intimidated by him, like I had judged him unjustly all those years. Now, as we were walking through, I kind of came to the realization that, holy shit, the kid who bullied me all my life was a male nurse, the most ridiculed of all medical professions. <laughs> so I said it to him, and his response to me was, yeah, well, you got bullied by a male nurse. <laughs> Completely echoing what was going on in my head. <laughs> and I had nothing to re respond to him. Now, Paul had actually become pretty amazing in the years that I hadn't seen him. Um, we actually talked a lot. He became actually uh, one of the people that I went to the most in the, in when I was inpatient. Uh, we found out when my mother brought in a stack of comic books for me that he was actually into comics as well. And we both had a mutual respect for heavy metal music. 
Uh, so he was almost, you know, it was really nice to be around someone without having to be afraid of a fist flying out of nowhere. I almost called him a friend. Now, the one thing that always struck me while I was in there, the one thing that struck me the most was the fact that he never apologized for bullying me. So I didn't want to confront him on it, but I finally steeled my resolve, and on the last day I was in there, I did. And I walked up to him and said, hey, Paul, um, I just got one question for you. Why? He looked at me and went, why what? I said, why, for all those years, did you bully me? Was it something that I did? Was there something wrong with you? Were you a messed up kid? Or was there something wrong with your parents? Why did you do it? And the air was filled with dread because I had just confronted my bully. But I had to do it. I had to, I had to press on for all the people who never got a chance to. And he looked at me and said, wow, uh, I was afraid of this because I'm not gonna give you the answer that you wanna hear. To be honest with you, I was not a messed up kid. There was nothing wrong with you and my parents were really cool. I just thought it was fun. But hey man, we were kids. Kids bully and kids get bullied. I'm not the reason you're here, am I? I really hope not. And I thought about it, because that struck me immediately, and I thought about it. And I was like, no, he's not. Because, to be honest, I was the person who had put me in here. I was the person who had done all the things in my life that led me to the place where I was now. And in fact, I was the one who did the most harm to myself. So I muttered a quick, no, you're not, <laughs> under my breath, almost embarrassed. He looked at me and said, well, I am sorry for the shit I did. So again, taken aback, I just muttered a quick thanks and turned to leave. And I realized at that moment that Paul had actually done more for me in that brief exchange than any amount of therapy had done up to that point. Because I realized that sometimes the people that you think you can't rely on or think you can't trust are sometimes the only people that can get you out of a dark spot. And as I was leaving, I never saw Paul again, by the way, because what happens inside stays inside. But as I was leaving, I do remember the last thing he said to me. He looked over at me and went, hey, hope you end up all right. Stop being a fucking pussy. <laughs> Thank you. That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.